0: What an honor to be asked to speak about someone who's enhanced my faith walk at Highland that has passed on to his great reward. When you've been at Highland as long as I have, since August of 1973, there have been many who have walked through my heart and planted new faith there. I came to Abilene to finish my undergraduate and master's degrees at ACU. When I finished those and was working, I felt a little lost at church. I was used to being in ministry prior to coming to Abilene and wanted to be involved again, but didn't know where or how to plug in. So I called Clois Fowler. This was a divine appointment. He asked me to come over to his and Betty's home so that we could talk. It ended up that I did the talking and he did the listening, and he listened with his whole being. It was like being wrapped in a warm blanket. He was able to tell me where my gifts were. He suggested I call David Lewis, who was the youth minister and creator of the Huddle program. Cloyes said, you belong in that ministry. He was so right. This ministry opened up a new world that is still unfolding today. Cloyce modeled for me love, kindness, acceptance, warmth, and listening ears. He showed me Jesus in the most real way. The Fowler family was my go-to family in Abilene. I miss him here on earth, but I know he watches from heaven. I have a deeper faith because of Cloyce. Thank you, Cloyce Fowler, for being my spiritual covering.
1: Good morning, church. It's been a minute since uh, I've been in this room with all of you. Uh, My wife, Amy, was going to be with me this morning, but she is uh, quite under the weather this morning. So uh, anyways, she sends her love and she'll be back, hopefully, the next time that we uh, lead worship together. Um, It was really great to hear everybody sing this morning. I'm not normally an acapella guy. I'm kind of a punk rock and metal guy, but it was uh, really great to hear everybody sing. And uh, it's just really good to be with you all this morning. So uh, let's hear from the word of god finally all of you have unity of spirit sympathy love for one another a tender heart and humble mind do not repay evil for uh, evil or abuse for abuse but on the contrary repay with a blessing Uh, it is for this that you were called that you might inherit inherit a blessing for those who desire to love life and to see good days let them keep their tongues from evil and their lips from speaking deceit. Let them, turn away from, uh, let them turn away from evil and do good. Let them seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who will harm you if you, eager, if you are eager to do what is good? but even if you do suffer for doing what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear, do not be intimidated, but in your hearts sanctify Christ as Lord. Always be ready to repay your defense to anyone who demands from you an accounting for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Maintain a good conscience so that when you are uh, maligned, those who abuse you will be for your good conduct in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if suffering should be for, uh, God's will, than suffer for doing than to suffer for doing evil. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which also he went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in former times did not obey. When God waited patiently in the days of Noah, during the building of the ark, in which a few, that is eight lives, were saved through water. And baptism, which this prefigured now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for the good conscience through the resurrection of jesus christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of god with angels authorities and powers made subject to god the word of the lord please be seated
2: man it's good to have the she's Beast back amen it is good uh, we're glad you're here and we're looking forward to, to when amy preaches in a couple of weeks um Also, I want to make another introduction. Uh, I want to introduce to you Reed, Amy, and Henry. Uh, We have a picture. Uh, It's coming. There it is. All right. Um, Reed is our new youth minister that is here to work alongside Ashley. Uh, We are very excited to have them here and get to know them better. Uh, READ is going to begin this week, and uh, we're going to have a more formal introduction and ordination later this summer. But I wanted you to kind of see their faces because they're around today. If you want to greet them and uh, tell them how glad you are to have them here, they did, however, just get back from a lo- or just get here from a long trip from Orlando, Florida. Uh, you know, so they're settling in. Uh, there is a food train that's already been set up. They are being welcomed. So let's focus on some long hospitality as we welcome Reed and his family to our Highland family. Uh, We're glad to have you here. Uh, We are in an interesting text today in 1 Peter. We've been going through this series we call Sanctuary and thinking about the living stones, the parts of this body that we call a church. And and Peter uses this metaphor of of a temple, the temple of God that we are being formed together into. And the part right before this text is a part that you're probably a little more familiar with in First Peter. It's called a household code. It also shows up in Colossians and Ephesians as Paul writes instructions for how to behave. You see it in First Timothy and Titus when, uh, when Paul is trying to do this for the church, not just a family. And it's instructions about how husbands and wives ought to behave towards one another. You know, uh, parents and children masters and slaves which were part of kind of the first century culture Uh, and in this move he says now in these relationships because there are standards that existed in the first century there were other household codes that others had written non-christians had written about how you're supposed to behave and usually that included for the the men the husbands the fathers the masters to dominate their families because if you can't Control your family, then it's an embarrassment, it's a shame for you. But Peter takes a different tact. It's a tact that we're gonna hear l- later when he when he's gonna to turn to how elders should leave, that they lead, that they should shepherd. But he realizes for this slave that's become a Christian, but their master hasn't yet. For this child that's become a Christian, but the paterfamilias, the head of their household, hasn't converted yet. For the wife of a, of a husband that hasn't converted yet, that there might be some rub there. In fact, they might suffer for doing it. It's going to make it uncomfortable. There's going to be more friction in their life. And Peter, in this section, just wants to kind of acknowledge the reality of that, that dissonance. And so Peter begins to say if if you're going to suffer at least suffer for doing good. And then you heard in the reading if you want to turn your Bible open to 1 Peter chapter 3 if it's on your app that's great, if it's on a paper Bible even better. Uh, I want us to see how densely a move Peter wants to take and he's going to take us to some strange places. I'm going to focus on verse 17 through 22 for the first part of the sermon. So if you have your Bible, look at that with me. It says, for it is better if it is God's will, so he's going to begin with God, to suffer for doing good than for evil, which makes sense. Because Christ suffered for sins, uh, once, Christ suffered also once for sins, for the righteous and the unrighteous, to bring you to God. So if you're going to suffer, at least suffer for doing the right thing because this is God's will. In fact, this is what Christ did. He was put to death in the body but made alive in the spirit. And after being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. Another way to translate that in your Bible might be he preached to the dead or proclaimed to the dead, which gets a little problematic. To those who were disobedient long ago, When God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And so I want you to understand, Peter begins by saying, if you're going to suffer, it's God, and if it's something for good, then then God is, is involved in that because Christ did the same thing. In fact, he suffered for everyone, for all sins. He was put to death, but made alive in the spirit, was raised again. And in the process of being raised again, he goes and makes proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, whatever that means, including those who were disobedient. A long time ago, in the days of Noah, while Noah was building the ark, well, you remember there was that widespread wickedness. Everyone was doing evil all the time, inventing ways of doing bad things. But Noah and his family, those eight people were saved. Through the water. In the same way, this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. Now he's going to bring us back from Noah. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone not only into Hades or Sheol, but into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers into submission to him. i got to tell you, there is no other part in 1 Peter that is as theologically dense as the text that we're dealing with today. And so what I want us to do for the next season, this little bit, is to unpack this together, to find out what the word that it is here for us today. Would you join me in prayer? Father God, we are grateful for this chance to be gathered together. We're grateful for your word, which shapes us and renews us and challenges us and forms us better into the image of your son, Jesus. Father, I'm grateful for this community that's been gathered here in this room and around the world online, that we celebrate together the resurrection of your son, Jesus, the power of the victory of life over death. And we pledge our lives and our our will, and our resources to join you in that fight of life over death, proclaiming the victory of Jesus until he comes again. And Father, to that end, as we turn our hearts and our minds to your word, I pray that you pour through me the gift of preaching, that I might speak your truth and love to these your people, and it's together that the church said, amen. All right, so if you're going to suffer, at least suffer for doing good. You wouldn't believe this by my stature in front of you today, but in middle school, I was kind of a nerd. <laughs> I was the kind of ler- nerd that loved math. I loved math because I thought they were just puzzles. Geometry was so much fun to me because it was just puzzles of, and figuring out answers. And, and for the most part, the way they set up math puzzles when you're in middle school is that they have a very kind of clear and answerable solution. And so you feel good when you're able to solve the puzzle. And it was in middle school, probably about seventh grade. I don't exactly remember when this happened, but it sticks out exactly in my mind. But there came a moment when I wasn't prepared and I wasn't ready, and I found out two periods before my math class that there was going to be a test. And I loved math, and I wasn't ready. And so I did the wrong thing. I cheated. I wrote down all of the formulas that I needed to have studied and remembered, you know, on my hand and I used them in the test. And I did really well in the test. I I got an A and and everybody moved past and nobody knew that I did it. I was successful in kind of sneaking my way through, except that my conscious would not allow that moment to lie still. And over a course of like a week and a half, this, this just kind of the guilt gnawed on me. It chewed on me. And I, I, I didn't know what to do. And so I went and I talked to my dad about it. And I said, dad, I need to tell you. I wrote down these formulas on my hand and I used them in the test. I got an A. And there was a glint in my father's eye at that moment. And at first I thought he was, he was angry at me or ashamed of me. But that's not how he felt about me. He knew what this moment was, even though I didn't know what it was. And so we talked about what I should do. What's the right thing to do in this situation? That it's not right to cheat on a test. It's not right because I I didn't learn the material, and the the goal is to always learn the material. And then the test isn't a value in itself other than to show you that you learned it or you didn't. It says nothing about your worth other than it says you you have what you need to have. And so I go to my math teacher, and it's after my eighth period, which is the last period of my class, and I walk in, it's it's 2.35, and my teacher's there grading papers, gathering up stuff, and I said, I need to tell you the truth. I said, I cheated on the test. I said, I'm sorry, I wasn't prepared. I said, if there's anything I can do, I'd like to make it up. And the teacher said, well, there's nothing you can do. And she failed me for the test. And I got a D for that six-week semester because there just wasn't enough homework grades to buoy the percentage of the test for the semester. And I got to tell you, that's not the way the story was supposed to end in my mind. (laughs) And I don't know if that's just like an aspect of kind of growing up, always assuming it's going to, if you do the right thing, it'll turn out well. I don't know if it's watching movies where honesty is rewarded and coming clean is valued. And, and, so, and that's what I've been taught. And, and the way the story was supposed to end was that teacher was supposed to be grateful to me and to respect me even more in my maturity for coming clean about this thing. And she was supposed to say, oh, it's okay. Why don't you retake the test? He'll give you another shot. I failed it. I got a Zero. And for the next three weeks, I sat down with my father and I argued with him. Because if I had done nothing, I would have suffered no consequence. But Because I did the right thing, I was being punished, and that just didn't seem fair. This isn't the way it's supposed to work. And if you've ever found yourself in a position like this, then you understand the rub and the contention of what we call health and wealth gospel. Is that there is some part of us that intuitively believes if I do the right thing at the right time in the right way, and even if I make a mistake, if I own up to it, then it's going to work out for me. And Peter says sometimes that's just not the way the world works. He says, How will you suffer for doing good? And then the very next sentence that he says, look at your Bible. How will you suffer for doing good? And the very next sentence is, if you suffer for doing the right thing, know that you're not suffering alone, that God is with you. Sometimes when you do the right thing, it won't turn out, at least it won't look like it's turning out well for you. Because people are going to malign your motives. This is, this, life is way more complicated than that linear design of a math test to see if you've learned an equation and you can do the process. Life is way more complicated like that than this. And the puzzles that we are faced with now are way more complicated and way less clear than figuring out the Pythagorean theorem. People are going to malign your motives. Even if you're trying to do the right thing, people are going to assume the worst about you. And people will view your actions in the worst possible light. And this is going to happen in your spouse relationship, in your your family relationship, and at your job relationship, and just people that you know. This is going to happen. And I need you to hear me carefully. When you face those moments, it is not the time to be nice. It's the time to stand up and to be kind. Kindness is the unassailable defense against those who will unjustly attack you. We talked about this a couple of years ago, but I want to remind you, there is a fundamental difference between being nice and being kind. Being nice is a response to power, right? It's when you tell your child, hey, I want you to be nice to so-and-so that's in your class because that's, that's the kid of my boss. Or, you know, would you just be nice to your cousin? I know that they're little and they annoy you, but... I need you guys to get along while you're on summer break. Being nice is a response to power. Being kind is something that comes from inside of you. It it, it finds, it resides itself in the heart of God, the Imago Dei inside of you. And it comes out of you. It's not because of any sort of external power or influence or motive, but it's something that you do because it's who you are. Kindness does not depend on the recipient of your kindness being able to repay you back. Kindness doesn't depend on the fact that they have the ability to affect your life in a positive way or a negative way. Kindness is what we do because it's who God is. And kindness is the unassailable defense against someone who will attack your motives. I know this is 100% true. I know it's true in the worst possible way because there have been interviews of people that have lived next door to serial killers. And because that serial killer helped them to take out the trash or mow their lawn, because they were kind to them, their next-door neighbor would say, I had no idea how terrible they were. Kindness changes the reality of the world around you. But in the end, we know, Peter says, that God is going to make it right. And so be obedient. I mean, Jesus suffered. Follow the pathway of Jesus. And and I, I love what Squeaky said today. Obedience is listening carefully. Obedience is listening carefully. It's paying attention to what what Jesus says It's paying attention to what someone says. It was last semester in my class, I, I teach a adjunct at Bible, a Bible class at ACU, and I had a student that was a freshman there, and, and, and he and I got into this argument over the nature and the value of the work of Jordan Peterson. If you don't know who that guy is, you don't need to worry about it. Um, I, there's a lot of people that really love it. There's a lot of people that really don't. I have some questions. I, I don't want to get into that argument now, I think he's doing the right thing for young men that are trying to figure out their way in a very difficult culture for them to understand their own identity. I just wish he would do it in a different way. And I I was trying to push back just real gently with this student. I'm trying to help him see that maybe maybe Jesus is a better way. Maybe there's a better way of understanding this. Maybe scripture is is a better way of kind of orienting your worldview. But this student had been listening so carefully to podcasts, and reading those books so carefully. He could quote chapter and page number of Peterson's work. He was being obedient. And it made it very difficult to push back. Obedience is listening carefully. We listen carefully to Jesus. And then Peter moves to this moment of like, about preaching in the time of Noah and this is where the Apostles' Creed kind of gets that notion of Jesus who was harrowed in hell, right? He spent some time in, in Hades. Now, there's, there's two words in Hebrew for this idea of, of hell— one is Gehenna, and that was the trash dump outside of Jerusalem. It was this place where there was fires always burning because the trash was always burning there. And you can imagine what trash smells like when it's burning all the time and there's rotten food there and things. It smelled terrible. There was always smoke. There was always fire. And that's one vi- vision that we understand of hell, Gehenna. The other side of, of hell, the other word is, is, is shale which is the place of the dead. It's kind of this place where dead people go. It's, it's this land, this existence that happens after time. And Peter here is probably talking about Sheol more than he's talking about Gehenna. Now, I want to preference everything I'm going to say here, but if you look at like 80 different scholars or commentators on what does it mean when Jesus preaches to the dead, you're going to get 80 different answers. And frankly, you can just take your pick. It, I don't know. But this is the one, these are the three that I think are the, the closest. There are those that think that what happened in that moment is that, um, that Jesus goes and preaches to those that didn't have a chance to see Jesus. Those that died before Jesus came and were, uh, were given a second chance to kind of hear that message. There's some sort of idea that Jesus is involved in ascending this metaphysical system as Jesus is going up to to reign and the throne of God. He kind of stops off on this level where the people who died, or maybe the the Nephilim, which is this weird thing that shows up in the book of Genesis, um, where they're being held and has a chance to tell them. And He does what Jesus does. He talks about justice and mercy and truth and redemption. It's clear that Peter is borrowing from the books like First Enoch, which isn't in your Bible, but it kind of lives in the neighborhood and shows up at barbecues sometimes. First Enoch influences the Bible, but it's not canon, and so we don't read it at the same time. And the Nephilim show up there, and it's just kind of these ugly worldly beings. And, and the, the Midrash, the story that 1 Peter knows exists at the time that his readers are available to, know that the Nephilim kind of caused everybody. They did things that caused the general chaos that was happening at Noah's time. And so maybe the redemption is, is the Nephilim. This shows up in other places in other stories, like C.S. Lewis and, and Tolkien. When Aslan, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, after he is raised uh, from the, by the power, Aslan goes to the White Witch's castle, and he breathes life on the statues, those that are already in the witch's control, which might be a reference to what Jesus does in Gehenna. Or in The Return of the King, part of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, Aragorn uses an undead army... To push a fleet out of the way so that he can continue his mission. So that they can be redeemed. Now, in the movie, they go in and fight in the city. That's not the real, that's not canon. Everybody knows that. (laughs) Nobody really knows what happens in this moment. Other than Peter seems to understand that his readers understand. So he doesn't have to spend a lot of time talking about it. He wants to connect the days of Noah with the power of the resurrected Christ. And maybe in some ways, the days of Noah are like any sort of typical time where it feels like everyone is kind of doing the wrong things all the time. They're just inventing new ways to do wrong things. And you're called to live there. And you're called to be kind there. You're called not to join in there. Even when it's someone close to you, someone that you love, and that, that's a difficult thing. I want us to call us back to what we talked about two weeks ago, that Peter's call to holiness is a call to participate in the struggle between the power of life over death. The book of Leviticus is a handbook for you to understand how to engage in that struggle of pursuing life over death, things that allow life to flourish as opposed to things that allow life to struggle. And maybe, just maybe, this this moment that Peter wants to talk about is where Jesus tells all of the dead things, you too have hope that even your death is not the end of the story. Because in the end, God is going to make it right. God's wisdom is going to make those moments that feel irredeemable right. God is going to help you to heal the scars and the wounds that you carry. And you may still walk with a limp for the rest of your life, but God is going to find a way to redeem them and make them right. Let me tell you what happened to me as a seventh grader. Getting an F on the the test, getting a D in my six weeks. It's the first D that I'd ever had in my life. It wasn't the last, but it was the first D that I ever had in my life, the twinkle in my dad's eye wasn't because he was angry. It wasn't because he was ashamed that his son had cheated. It's because he saw the moment for what it was to help me develop character. In fact, my dad was grateful that it happened to me in the seventh grade and not when I was in college. He was grateful that it happened to me when I was in an adolescence and not when I was a full-grown adult because I had a chance to learn that lesson earlier before the ruts in my brain had already been created because if I had learned the lesson that you can cheat on tests and get away with it, there was a lot of things I probably would have never learned. If I had believed the lie that the purpose of a test is for me to pass rather than for me to acquire the formation that I need to succeed, I would have never learned Greek or Hebrew, and there's about half a dozen ways in my job, and probably in your job, where you can skirt by, where you can make it work. God used that moment in middle school to help develop character. It, It used that moment to teach me kindness for others that are in a hard spot and have to make difficult choices. Jesus uses the dead to show his power and his sovereignty over the cosmos. Because holiness, the struggle of life over death, isn't just for you to choose life. It's not just for you to end up on the right side of an equation at the end of your life. It is the struggle of God in this world to redeem everything that is dying and rotting and decaying and bring it back into his glorious kingdom. And the truth is, is that we live our life, we live um, through our baptism. I love what Gordon McKellen said. Our baptism represents the notion that before anything else, God loved us. Before any good that you did, God loved you. Before any mistake that you made, God loved you. What came first in each of our lives was love from God, which is unaffected by whether or not we respond or to or recognize that love. God loves us, period. We may not feel it. Some may not want it. Others choose to ignore it. But regardless of our response, God's love endures. And our baptism is an invitation to view the world through this lens. When we see our lives through our baptism, our worth and our value can change. We are freed from the tyranny of self-pity and self-doubt. And our baptism transforms the way that we suffer. Suffering that we experience without a sense of connection to greater purpose Suffering that we experience for no apparent reason. It only creates fear and doubt. But suffering that is connected to the heart of God, connected to the knowledge that you are first and foremost loved by God, and that God is greater than the power in front of you, that suffering can change you. This is how Jesus can turn the other cheek. This is how Jesus prays for his enemies. This is how Jesus has kindness for his tormentors. And so can we. We don't do this often in Highland, but today I want to end uh, this service with an invitation. Our prayer team is going to come up. They're going to be available. Come on up now. Uh, our prayer team is going to be available for you to, for prayer. If, um, if you'd like someone to talk to you about something that's happening in your life, if there's a specific reason you'd like prayer, uh, they want to be available for you. They, it can happen now uh, after the service, or it can happen later this week. Just say, hey, I'd love a, to get a cup of coffee, and they'd be happy to talk to you. But I want to offer you a second invitation today. Your life needs to be transformed by the lens of baptism. Not so that you can kind of get a check mark on your kind of spiritual uh, soul that allows you to say, okay, well, now I'm good, now I'm in heaven. Baptism transforms the way we understand the world. It transforms the way we understand suffering. It invites you into a life where you perceive the struggle between life and death and gives you the freedom to choose to be on the side that is struggling for life. Baptism is a way that we live into and we experience the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Death is, uh, baptism is a way of saying... I'm going to be obedient to God. And my obedience is going to be careful listening to what Jesus says. Careful observance of what Jesus does. And you're going to experience the power of the Spirit to transform you. To take every action in your life that just felt like meaningless and senseless pain, abuse, and find a way to redeem it to give it meaning. So, If that's the invitation that you needed to hear today, if that's the invitation to find Christ in the waters of baptism, I'd like you to find somebody that's wearing one of these uh, today. Uh, I'm going to be up in the front here on the side. Find somebody that has one of these and say, I'd like to have a a deeper conversation about what it means to be baptized. And we're going to connect you to the right people. So please stand for our benediction. Church today, 1 Peter tells us that there is no power. There is nothing that you've gone through in your life that is irredeemable by God's love. God loved you first and foremost before the creation of the universe. Before anything in your life went well or went bad or has been amazing or has been hard, God's presence has loved you dearly. And God invites you into joining the struggle of life against death. So this week, be part of that battle. Battle with kindness and mercy and generosity. Be a person of peace to everyone that you meet. Go with God's spirit.